This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Uh, Professor, interesting week. Um, you know, there's been some ups, some downs, a lot of global discussions. You got stuff going on in Europe, the UK, and Brexit. You've got China, the trade, um, but we've also had a, a string of Fed speakers from. From Powell talking yesterday, there's some headlines on Clarita thinking that we're starting to get close to neutral on the policy rate. And I know you're looking forward to talking to Loretta Master later this year. But uh, sort of thoughts on what's happening in the markets, this interest rate dynamic. Uh, what's what's your, your pulse? Yeah, well, you're, you're right. I mean, I listened to Richard Clarita's interview on CNBC this morning. It's his first live interview since being vice chair. We have talked about Richard Clarita. He was actually the inventor of the new neutral um, uh, that Bill Gross uh, ran with when they were both at PIMCO. Um, And basically, he said, we are not there yet. Um, But he uh, talked about his his remarks. There were two things in his remarks that I think encouraged uh, the fixed income market, particularly today. One was he definitely talked about the global slowdown. I mean, pretty shocking negative GDP numbers uh, for uh, the third quarter, both from Germany and from Japan. Uh, and uh, secondly, he seemed to imply that he'd be satisfied just getting to the to the neutral rate, which is 3%, according to the Fed, not moving above it as the dot plots in the September uh, uh, projections of the Fed uh, suggested. Um, uh, in, in other words, he's saying we're seeing some slime of, of slowness, and we're, you know um, we, we've got to assess that. Now, all that said and done, as we know, it's a very critical meeting on December 19th. The Fed is going to raise, I, I think, there, and in fact, he seems to support that. But I think what's really important is the statement that's going to come out on the 19th, because I think. There very well may be words that suggest that there will not raise at every quarter and that there may be a slowdown. Now, all that said, we are five weeks away from that. Um, so there's a lot of data that is going to come through uh, and could change uh, the picture. But I think this encouraged the fixed income market. We saw the dollar fall uh, today. We saw bonds a rally. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, I think that that was off of uh, Clarita's, uh, uh, comments uh, this morning. Yeah, I was on a, on a panel down in Miami earlier this week with the with the head of fixed income with one of the major firms who's plugged into all these Fed commentators. He's on the advisory council for for the New York Fed, and uh, you know he said he's not known Jerome Powell for a while, and he can see you know at least the commentary they're giving is that they are you know when, when I, we talked about what is the real neutral, are we there? How much more are we going to actually get to? And his comment was, now he's a fixed income guy, so you take that with a grain of salt, but but as a true economist and thinker, he thinks we're there and that things are starting to roll over and that, you know, some of the high, you know, the, some of the indicators, the economic indicators he's watching, so the interest rate sensitive from housing to autos to some other things he mentioned were sort of rolling over and that you might be getting too tight. He, did again, didn't think that they were going to stop in December, like they were going to do the December, but that we're just not going to do anywhere near as much as, as people, well, that some yeah. people think for next year. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you know, it's interesting because when you know, Bill Gross came out and, you know, with the first new neutral and saying it was zero, 
um, uh, we're at zero uh, real rate new neutral. Um, the Fed, of course, thought that it was two and a half, three percent. They've kept on coming down. Uh, they think the real rate neutral is one. So when you add that to the two percent inflation, that gives you that three percent neutral uh, there. But uh, let me mention that even though the labor market remains very, very tight and, you know, we don't see any indicators of stopping this you know, demand for labor, uh, we do see softness in the price indicators. I mean, the, the, the collapse of oil is really uh, dramatic. Um, and uh, even other commodities are, 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 are moving downward. Uh, so and, and, and the uh, inflationary expectations uh, marked by the difference between the 10-year nominal yield and the TIPS yield, which is something the Fed looks at very closely, uh, for the first time in a year, uh, this week dropped below 2%. So um, there are signs of that slowdown, and they'll have more signs in December. I expect to hike, but at this point, I expect wording that suggests that uh, they're going it's a wait and see after this hike. The truth of the matter is 1% real might be too high. Hmm. Uh, maybe it is still zero, and we are now there at the, uh, at the neutral rate of interest. Very good. And I know you've been expecting a bit of choppiness going into your end. Did that sort of nothing changing as far as that? Although, you know, a little bond pressure might help that. If, if, if bonds, uh, I mean, bond yields dropping a little bit, if that, that yeah. might be one of the things that help, uh, help support it. That'll help support it. I, I think, I mean, I mean, um, you know, we were just at, at three and a quarter and now we're at like 308, 307. Um, and, and I think the hope of, of a pause uh, and everyone's going to be looking at that. Um, and if the Fed does, in fact, signal a um, slowdown in that, um, you know, we could have a nice, very year-end rally. Now, again, again, this is five weeks away. We're going to have a lot of programs, yep. and we're going to have a lot of data, <laughs> of course, including, of course, the November labor market report. So, uh, you know, but but the early thoughts seem to me that we're going to be cautious until that December 19th, and um, we might see a nice rally after that if the Fed does, in fact, say that it is slowing down. Very good, Professor. We're going to have a macro-focused show today, so thank you for leading off with some comments today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. be a, a very exciting conversation. We have two guests in me, with me in the studio today, um, a, and one former Wharton grad, Maura Pape. Maura, welcome to our studio. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. <laughs> We're going to go into your background. We know each other. It's got to be probably now 14, 15 years. I don't remember the exact time that we met at Wharton, but we'll talk about how we got to know each other, what you're doing at Deep Macro. Um, but we also have another special guest in the studio, Lee Chen Ren, um, now of Wisdom Tree, the new director of Modern Alpha, second day on the job, second appearance on Behind the Markets. Welcome back to Wharton. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm so happy. And thank you to our Twitter friends. Um, when compliance says I could start tweeting again, but I uh, just want to thank everybody for congratulating me. So yes. Li Shen's come from Vanguard over from the dark side to the right side. <laughs> <laughs> Can we say that? <laughs> what a commute yesterday. We, we bring her from Philly to New York, and she's doing the commute, and it's like a five-hour commute home. Like, I, what a great start. But in Chinese, you know, the first day, first snow of the year is the one of the most auspicious days. So it was great yesterday. I met this, great people. This is the mentality that says, wow, this girl is, is special. I thought she wouldn't show up for the second day after that commute. <laughs> no, it was all sunny today here in Philadelphia. Um, um, I like that show. It's sunny in Philadelphia. There you go. <laughs> um, actually, uh, most of, a lot of my friends ask me, what is Wisdom Tree? And I was telling them Wisdom Tree is the leading thought leader in factors, and not just in equity, but across many different, because before they don't, want, they don't know much about Wisdom Tree's fixed income, currency, and multi-factor, yep. you know, all these areas. So I hope, you know, to work on these areas with all the great team members that uh, I met yesterday. No, it's been fun just getting to spend time together here at Penn today, and we're going to look forward to doing that a lot of Fridays. Hopefully this is not your second show, but you will be on more so people can hopefully stay tuned. We're going to try to get Lee Chen on the program quite often talking to guests. And this conversation with Maura, um, it fits in right. We had lunch together, and Maura, I, I could see where Lee Chen is going to be a, a great compliment to this conversation. So so maybe tell people, you studied here at, at Penn, um, maybe sort of tell people 
just a little bit about yourself, how you, where you went from Penn and, uh, and where you went. Sure. Um, right now, I am the, a strategist and a director of business development uh, at Deep Macro. Um, Deep Macro is a company that has an automated view of both developed and emerging markets economies, and we use that uh, to create investment portfolios. Um, but way before that, as Jeremy mentioned, um, I was an intern <laughs> right down Locust Walk um, working on some of the portfolios um, at Wisdom Tree. Um, Small world here. <laughs> definitely is. Um, after Wisdom Tree, I went uh, to Morgan Stanley, and from there, um, I went to Soros Fund Management, joined the macro team, so got some experience doing macroeconomic research focused on fixed income and foreign currency. And from there, um, I managed a foreign currency portfolio at, at Lorian Capital. So Soros, um, they're in the news a lot. Um, what, what, what Tell us about your experience at Soros and what, what you were doing there. I had a great experience at Soros. I was hired to work by the chief economist who's become a great mentor of mine. Um, and we basically did the fundamental research um, and tried to provide the firm with um, thought leadership on where the economy was going and how this would impact macro assets. Um, it was an interesting time to be on the trading floor there as uh, in 2009 and 2010, the economy was growing, going through quite a bit. Um, so we were busy, but it was a wonderful learning experience. <laughs> Can you actually use macro signals to have an investment conclusion? Is that something you can do? Absolutely. And that's um, really it, it, the work we did there leads into the things that I'm trying to do um, at Deep Macro. Um, so at Deep Macro, we actually take a factor-based approach to uh, macro investing, which is a little bit different, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so Lee Chen, we, we know about factors in equity. So we know value, we know momentum, we know quality. What do we know about factors in macro? Um... Growth and uh, inflation. I, I was working at the Fed, uh, working on inflation forecasting. Um, at that time, we usually think about these as lagging indicators. So maybe you can you know help us understand that actually they could be uh, leading indicators of, of um, different assets. Sure. Um, so I'll just back up a little bit to give an overview of how we think about factors. Yeah. Um, what we do um, at Deep Macro is we take a bunch of data, um, official sources that you're familiar with, like non-farm payrolls, the PMI, and we actually add in big data as well. And we take all of this and we put it into, it's like a big funnel. Um, and we let the algorithms decide what's important for uh, growth and inflation. Um, this really helps to focus all of this data we have on things that we already know that the market cares about. Um, and once we have these growth and inflation factors, we think about them as building blocks for our investment portfolios. Um, so the data that we incorporate allows us to get um, a more timely read with the big data and also to incorporate um, some orthogonal information that is not in the official data and the markets will price. And So now, Lee Chad might understand orthogonal here, but for our general listener listening in, talk about, also talk about the algorithm. So maybe you throw all this data into a funnel and, and the, the box, the black box, the algos, they figure it all out. But how, what, what's actually going on there? Um, we're using a technique called dynamic factor modeling. So it's just picking out the parts of the data that explain um, growth and inflation um, in their condition on growth and inflation forward looking. Um, so we want to see what we can find that helps us describe the business cycle. And finding these factors, some will be more important than others, um, the data once you've processed it. Um, but what we want to do is have very good summary measures to say what's happening in the economy. So tell us a little bit more about the people who started Deep Macro. How how did it come to be sort of it's still sort of a startup in this in this research space. I mean, tell us about your founders, what you're looking to accomplish, what you want to do. Sure. Um, Deep Macro was started in 2016. The co-founders are Jeff Young and Jim Cowie. Um, Jeff Young came from the finance side. Um, he actually developed um, the, some of the core IP of Deep Macro that we were later able to import while he was working at a hedge fund called Platinum Grove Asset Management. And this is where they really set up the factor system. So they were taking the data, deciding what should go into the factors and thinking about how to use that in the market context. Um, 
The innovation with starting Deep Macro was putting big data and alternative data sets into this framework. Um, so a dynamic factor modeling framework is it's easy to add in big data right into the standing framework because you're just, as we said before, sort of letting the algorithm decide what's important, um, agnostic to whether the data is coming from um, the BLS or it's coming from a satellite. Um, and the other co-founder, Jim Cowie, came on board um, to help with that big data effort. Um, Jim's background is in internet measurement and internet research. Um, he has been an entrepreneur. Uh, his last company was eventually sold to Oracle. So between the two of them, they were able to get a synergy of um, a robust macroeconomic framework that has been tested over time and um, big data to capture and, and bring it really uh, into the data age. And so, and so how big is your team? We are nine people right now. Um, nine so people, data scientists. We have data scientists. We have a portfolio strategist. We have a front-end developer. And we have uh, a woman who maintains a lot of the, the code base for our factor system, who actually worked on it um, at Platinum Grove as well. Another Chicago PhD. <laughs> yes. Chicago PhDs are all over. Yes. <laughs> We're happy to have one on our team, that's for sure. Um. So what? But so tell us a little bit about the business model. So Deep Macro today, technology company, research engine. How are you trying to commercialize all the the insights that you guys are creating? Yeah. So right now um, we have two business lines. Um, one is our research products, and another is our investment portfolios. Um, so we think about our, our research as driving these investment portfolios that we've created, and as the platform um, for building more of these portfolios. Um, so right now um, we have clients who subscribe to um, our research service who like to look at what our factors are doing and, and the reports that we write about them. And um, we also have um, portfolios for um, investors who are looking for a bit more of a comprehensive investment solution rather than just the raw research. Um, but we think of them as highly complementary in that we use our own factors and think about them and work with them uh, every day. Um. So, you if maybe you talk through you talk so you could get the research package. Um, you're creating portfolios from these insights. So you talk about you're going to try to create a growth and inflation score, and you're going to look at trends in growth, trends in inflation, levels of it to create some kind of asset allocation framework. Maybe talk about some of the portfolios that you would create, sure. having a better model to look at growth and inflation. Yeah, so we really think of the growth and inflation factors as the building blocks um, of our portfolios. Um, so once we have these, we can do a lot of different things. Um, for example, our um, asset allocation model makes heavy use of the growth and inflation factors. Um, I should say that all of our portfolios are, are factor-based, and we like to have, with all of them, um, a high level of explainability. Um, we don't want to just use machine learning in a black box, although that does work in some cases. We really want to uh, have fundamental rationales for why we're doing the things we're doing. So in our global tactical asset allocation portfolio, we're trying to exploit differences between business cycles across different countries across time. Um, so the growth and inflation factors are, are great for doing this. Um, what we like to do is think about um, from a starting point, uh, how would you describe these different s parts of the business cycle? What do you need to know to know something like that? Um, so we have a growth factor, which tells us the level. You can look at the change in it, which is important as well, because it's a very different economic state if the economy is high and falling or low and rising or high and increasing. Um, so we think about the level and change of growth, the level and change of inflation, and the level and change of risk in the market. Um, we choose to define this risk quite broadly, and we're really looking for um, large systemic risk events rather than um, picking up smaller changes. Um, once you have these six dimensions, um, it gets pretty quick, pretty quickly gets to a point where it's hard for a human to hold all of those things in their mind at the same time. You can't really put something like that on a chart, um, but it's really easy for a machine to do. Um, so we have various um, techniques for reducing this into what we call different economic regimes, which are states of the economy that are similar to each other on the metrics that we measure. Um, and we use this um, to allocate uh, between uh, equity and fixed income assets. 
um, that's one example of how um, we use factors in the portfolio process. That's great. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We're talking with Maura Pape, strategist, director of business development at Deep Macro. We have Lee Chen Ren, director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Um, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, so, so Maura, as you talk about this factor model that humans can't really understand. So let's see how well you can help us understand this. So you have this growth in inflation and it's got an equity in bond. So the standard model everybody talks about is a 60-40 stock bond mix. I don't know how you benchmark your this global tactile. Is that something you would benchmark this versus? Or how do you benchmark this global tactile? Um, I think that that's an interesting question. I mean, we think of ourselves as, um, you know, being an asset allocation strategy. But if you look across different GTAA portfolios, they're really doing a lot of different things. So um, comparing as a first pass to a 60-40 benchmark, I, I'd say is reasonable. Okay. So well, how, if if it's reasonable, but where would you say these equity bond allocation, is that, is that when you say it's reasonable, is that because it, on average over time they might look like a 60-40? Like what would the equity bond allocations be across time for what, whatever you're creating? Um, the equity and bond allocations actually vary quite broadly over time. I mean, okay. we saw in our portfolio um, in, in the back test, um, equities went down to an extremely low weight um, because of the economic state and because of the high levels of risk in the market. Um, so we're not really just trying to tilt from a benchmark. Um, it is a full-on systematic and active strategy yeah. that can move a lot in both directions. Actually, do you, if I have a question, um, can you explain a little bit in terms of how do you select the uh, equity and bond based on these factors? So when we think about, for example, value, we say, you know, buy companies with low, uh, you know, like the highest value score, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about um, uh, equity and bond, like what what are, what are the conditioning of these like, how do you condition the factors? Right. So the way we think about the regimes is that once we've calculated what regime we're in, different regimes um, have different expected returns. And we'd want to maximize the expected return in the portfolio. Um, so, for example, one of the regimes that we've identified in our research, um, growth is quite low. Inflation is low and often falling. And risk levels are quite high. Um, that would be a recession, um, just putting a human interpret mm -hmm. interpretive name on it. And we would allocate accordingly to the expected returns that you would see in an economic environment like that. Bonds. Yeah. To, to edge across equities. <laughs> but that, across that would, equities would that would tell you to go income. to bonds? Is that? Yes, exactly. And, then, but, and, and with it, would you go like zero equities all the way to bonds? Or like, how do you think about you that? You can do that. Yeah. It's, it's possible in the model to just get out of equities completely. Mm. Yeah. How so, many regimes do you have? Like, um, in terms of is it the regime discrete or is the regime continuous? That's a good question. So we've identified um, five different regimes. You could do that in a lot of different ways. Um, but you can allocate differently based on um, distances between a bunch of regimes, or you can look at it just in the regime you're in. Um, so there are definitely a lot of things to explore when you're when you're thinking about regime-based investing. So you said five regimes. So now we're going to do we have a quintile. So let's say we already talked about the worst regime. The best regime is... Well, you know, the current regime that we're in right now actually doesn't look that bad at all. Mm. Um, we'd characterize it as still an expansion, which can seem a little counterintuitive to anyone who was sitting uh, at a trading desk throughout October. Yeah. Um, but w what we're seeing in our factors right now, um, this is mostly applicable to the G10 countries that we're allocating for in our portfolio, is that growth has come down since the beginning of 2018, but it's still positive and above trend. Um, inflation is positive and it's slightly rising, but not enough um, to make any of the central banks, um, you know, take further action. And um, our risk model is actually in the middle of the historical range. Um, as so I it's not yet late cycle. Well, I think that there are late cycle characteristics in that growth is not as high as it was. We're seeing growth start to come down. Um, but, you know, the the risk levels just aren't there yet to say that we're on a full-on risk regime. We actually think that the um, performance of the market in October had a lot to do with the valuation of stocks rather than um, systemic risk levels throughout the market. Hmm. 
I mean, so you heard a little bit of Professor Siegel at the top of the show talking about the Fed comments and this idea of what is neutral. Um, so, you know, Clarita thinking we have this new neutral, that the new neutral might be a zero real yield. So we're at basically 2% Fed funds, inflation's two. So we basically are at zero real. And the question is, are we getting to a 1% real? So another maybe four hikes, 2% real, which what the Fed had been saying before for a while, but it seems aggressive now. But uh, where, where does deep macro come out on what is neutral? Where are we in that? Um, so we, I would just look at our short-term rates model. Um, so basically, um, right now, we are either a little bit received or neutral across all G10 countries in our model. What Received our mon- or neutral? Yeah, received to neutral. So we think that rates will either be in line with the forwards or that they will be slightly lower than the forwards over the next couple months um, in G10 countries. Um, So the way that we think about this and the way that we get to our expectations are we want to look at the two-year rate. um, And we think of this uh, as a proxy for medium-term monetary policy. And that's what we're trying to forecast in our model. Um, And we use our growth and inflation factors along with a measure of central bank speech um, to come to these conclusions. Um, So basically, it's a, it's a Taylor rule um, enhanced with transparency. Um, and the way that we're coming out, given our views on growth and inflation right now, is that uh, market rates across G10 um, are fair to uh, maybe a little bit too high in the forwards. Mm-hmm. Do we want to, again, for our listeners who may not know the Taylor rule here mm-hmm. at Chen, do you want to describe that for people? Um, so Taylor, he's based on the Professor Taylor, who has come up with a simple rule based um, based on the inflation and then the growth rate. And based on a formula, there is an interest. The Fed should target that interest should target that interest rate. So there's a lot of controversy um, in terms of whether the Fed actually you know, follows, follows it. And I remember some research which shows that actually if you use real-time data instead of the revised data, the Taylor rule is actually closer to what the Fed does. But you know, that is still subject to debate. But can I ask a follow, follow-up question? So when you do global tactical asset allocation using this factor of uh, growth and uh, inflation, do you decide the regime for each country and then allocate the equity and bond accordingly, or do you do something else? Um, it's possible to do either, but we actually look at global regimes. Okay, so you actually have a different, like a global regime instead of uh, just for each country you have a growth and um, well, I guess the answer is we could calculate it. Um, we could calculate it for both. Um, okay. And it's definitely something that we've been looking more and more at because basically um, what we've built with that is is a pretty robust platform for doing a lot of these uh, exciting experiments that, that you're talking about. Um, so, so, Maura, we were talking about your, your macro insights and you, know, you were talking about a lot on big data coming in. So you have sort of machine learning algorithms and growth and inflation targeting. But talk about this big data initiative and how you guys are really applying big data to some of your models. Yeah. So um, at Team Macro, we think of big data both as the data itself and the processes of collecting it um, and making it useful. Um, so we collect data from a lot of different sources. Um, most of it is from the public internet. Um, so we like to look at things like um, pollution data that comes from a satellite. Um, we look at online hotel bookings. We look at online job postings. And the idea with this is that um, in this big data, um, we can find a couple of advantages. Um, first, if we can measure something that the official data measure, but faster. That would be one reason why we want to look at it. Or we would want to measure something that is not measured in the official data. Um, so I think a good example of, of the first type of thing that we would really be looking for um, is data that we collect from a satellite um, that NASA put up. So every day, the satellite is orbiting the Earth, and it takes over a million readings mm. of concentrations of pollutants um, all over the world. And we know that in some areas, this concentration of pollutant um, has a good relationship with industrial production. Um, so we've isolated those areas in which pol- the oh. pollution data is 
is important for industry. Um, and after some processing by our data team, um, we come out with series that we call our daily industrial indicators. Um, and we found that these do a great job measuring um, growth in the economy and industrial production. But instead of waiting um, between four and six weeks to get official data in a country, um, we get this with a two to three day lag. Um, so there's a pretty big advantage in being able to use something like that. Um, That's interesting. Now, I was going to ask you, say, as a startup company, two years old, how do you afford all these different data sets? But putting it out by NASA, I assume that maybe actually... Is that a, a free data set? But you just got to yeah. have the efforts to go and do the work like you're exactly. doing. Exactly. So um, it's the the volume and the um, format that it's in that makes it not easy. But yeah. uh, most of the data that we obtain um, is just um, on the Internet and yeah. in sources like, like NASA and stuff like that. That's fascinating. I, I think Lee Chen, we know where she's going with this polluting question. I think there's no question who's the one of the big polluters around the world. It's got to be your home country. Oh, thank you. So um, <laughs> there's you. so many questions about China, trade war. Um, so my question to you is in China, uh, what, what's your model is talking? You know, there are some people who are very pessimistic on China, uh, whether we can find some solution to the trade war, which will be beneficial to both uh, U.S. and China. Um, and but some people who are very optimistic because people who've been kind of shorting China for the last 30 years has been proven wrong. So what is your <laughs> model? Um, well, I, I can definitely speak to, to what our factors are saying. Um, on the growth side, um, we are getting a fairly positive signal um, on the industrial side, and we did have some good export data recently. Um, so, you know, the growth is still, we think, slightly below trend, um, but we're certainly not as pessimistic as the consensus seems to be. Um, and when we find that we're different with consensus in these situations, we uh, we go with it because um, in a lot of situations, uh, we have gotten the market right in these out-of-consensus calls. Um, on the inflation side, um, inflation has been positive and steady, which I think is very important for the overall picture. Um, if you were thinking about what happened in 2015, 2016, um, with the additional pressures put on the economy by deflation, um, it's, it's just not the same scenario mm. now. So it allows us to be a little bit more positive. Um, our China effort, um, actually, it goes beyond the factors, and we have categorized and um, compiled a lot of um, freestanding big data indicators for China. We call this our, our, our deep China product. Mm. Um, mm. So in addition to the industrial indicator, um, we also look at things like um, sentiment on the renminbi um, gathered by um, tweets on Weibo, which is the Chinese version of Twitter. Um, so our natural language processing specialist gathers all of this information and measures the tone in the language of how positive or negative um, people are um, on the renminbi. Um, and, you know, ultimately, the currency um, should be determined by central bank policy. But we find that this, combined with some of our other indicators, are um, pretty good at measuring capital flow pressures is, is what we're really trying to do here by taking a gauge on what people think about the currency. Um, Lee Jin, I assume you're on this Twitter platform in China. <laughs> Um, uh, I am, but I have not posted. So, compliance <laughs> officer, please don't worry. Okay, but so using your human judgment of this, what is the sentiment? Is people what you from what you see? What what do you read as the sentiment? Um, when I talk to our Chinese friends, my Chinese friends, they definitely is worried uh, about whether it will cross the seven. It seems like mm -hmm. the magic number, but it actually. Um, you know, went back a little bit uh, last couple of days. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also coupled with the economics. You know, if China can continuously grow, then people are less worried about um, pulling money out of China. But, yeah. um, so so, so it, the currency has been falling a bit. Um, is, is now, and you were giving a little bit more industrial production is robust, not as worried as consensus. Does that give you this direct currency? I want to be long the China currency or is it is it a lot more complicated? Um, well, in China, it's not. We don't have a direct view that comes out in our currency model or anything like that. But what okay. we try to do um, with the information that we have is get a read on the economy and then use other big data indicators to measure capital flow pressures. Um, so like I was saying, we look at um, what people think about the currency. And we also have a lot of data on the real estate market, um, which is what we think of as another indicator of capital flow pressures. And that's one of one of 
of the things that we're seeing on our dashboard that doesn't look as great mm. <laughs> as the others. So it does put a bit of caution um, in the view. Um, so you're saying a lot of people are selling houses? We look at real estate asking prices, and mm -hmm. um, we look at trends in those, and they haven't been as positive when we compare them to things like our industrial indicators, which actually uh, look pretty good right now. Okay, so housing is actually, unlike uh, in the U.S., um, uh, most Americans, their wealth is more in the um, in the financial assets, and um, real estate assets is like twenty percent of the wealth. In China, is uh, the opposite. Mm. So, real estate wealth is about sixty seventy percent of a typical family's wealth. So, are you saying because the prices of the real estate is not as strong as before? That puts pressure on the currency? Um, I'm just saying that's one thing that goes into our overall view of of the market. Um, and as you were saying, uh, real estate prices in China are very important, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why we track them um, even by tier of city. Okay. <laughs> yes. We're going to have to follow up. I know there's a professor here at Wharton, Joe Jerko, who's got a very interesting, I don't know if you took Joe's class when you're at Wharton. I, I, I did a real estate competition with him back in probably 03, 04. But he has a special project with China monitoring real estate housing prices. You might connect with oh, him. Oh, interesting. And yeah. I know a few years ago he was going back and forth to China on this uh, Wharton partnership mm -hmm. monitoring Chinese house prices or real estate prices. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask another follow-up question. You, uh, previously you mentioned about that you also use central bank uh, speeches. Uh, do you do natural language processing of those speeches? Um, um, to to gain some kind of uh, politic political factor, or how do you use those? Um, I think the the work we do on central bank speech is a good example of. I said some data, um, big data, has an advantage because it's timely. Um, that's a good example of something that we don't have an official read on in in a data set, but the market does price. Um, so what we do for central bank speech is we collect for the G10 countries. Um, speeches of central bankers, uh, minutes, um, we the press conferences, and the statements. Um, and what we do is use various language, natural language processing techniques to try to get a read on whether central bankers are becoming uh, more or less positive on growth and inflation. Um, I think as, as we saw today, even with all that's going on in the world, um, the Fed speech um, comes right into the headlines. So uh, having a way to measure that and yeah. um, implement it in a model is uh, pretty powerful. Yeah, and you figure out who's the more important speakers than others. And Clarita certainly had an impact today. You could see that come in right, you know, right dead in center. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, you know, is playing out into currency. Um, you know, certainly we see the dollar reacting today. And, and one of the so your work at Soros and some of your other macro research does translate to currencies. Um, how do you think – now, we do a lot of work at Wisdom Tree talking about just generally what is the case to always be long a currency? Is mm -hmm. there like a – are you paid to be short the dollar all the time, mm -hmm. which is like what people do generally? But what do you think about – you have sort of standalone currency models. Like mm -hmm. what is the case to do a standalone currency model as a – how should people think about using those models in their portfolios, or how are you selling it to institutional clients, things like that? Mm. So the way we think about the the economic rationale for having an active currency portfolio, what we think is you're pre-positioning for capital flows, um, and we sort of take that as the starting point. What are the things in the economy that would make flows go in and out of a country. Um, so just starting with that, um, some things that we consider in the model are carry, um, whether interest rates differentials are high enough to matter um, for short-term currency flows, um, the business cycle, um, which could prompt flows in the equity market and other things, uh, valuation, which would be more long-term structural flows based on um, you know, longer-term values of the currency. And we also look um, at risk levels um, because that's always important um, in the currency market. Um, so really, in three different time frames, we're trying to determine the things that would make a currency appreciate relative to the rest of the universe that we're putting it in. Um, and we make use of our factors in here. Um, so the growth and the business cycle, it, that actually comes from the factors that we, we calculate and uses the building blocks of our other models as well. So how so go back to how should people like how are people using it like when they put it for their portfolio like is it a do you have good examples 
Um, you can use it as a standalone portfolio. Yeah. This strategy actually ran live um, at Platinum Grove Asset Management many yeah. years ago. Um, or you can use it's it. It's like um, an alternatives bucket. And yeah. They, they apply with a lot of leverage in a lot of these cases. Exactly. So you can also issues. use it in um, portable alpha yeah. if you wanted to layer it on top of a tactical asset allocation portfolio or something like that. That's also something that would be a pretty common usage. Yeah, that's somewhat like where you have a you have an asset, like let's say you have an international equity asset, and you mm-hmm. do this quote-unquote portable alpha on top to add, so that way you're not using it more capital, right? Because exactly. as a standard investor creating their portfolio, mm-hmm. they have a stock picks, a bond pick, and then how do you fit in this currency piece is like the big question. Is it capital intensive and expected returns? Like, what, How would you think about the, the long-run expected returns and the risk levels this is where it gets really tricky, right? <laughs> yeah. This is in terms of the use case. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, it's in a portfolio, there's a good argument for having international exposure. And um, having managed a, a currency portfolio myself, I do think that there are inefficiencies in the market that you can exploit um, you between different business cycles um, to justify taking positions mm. um, over time. Um, and on a medium-term basis, um, the theory would be that if you can have a better view on growth and inflation and where countries are in the business cycle and be very systematic about it <laughs> over a long period of time, that that should uh, be able to make money. And um, in the back tests of our portfolios, we've seen that. And it's been quite a quite a long out of sample back test for, mm-hmm. for this portfolio. Um, but it's tended it's tended to do um, pretty well. Um, one thing that I think is interesting about its performance recently is that um, the main driver of the returns this year has actually been the growth factor. Um, So Mm -hmm. thinking about all the different things that are going on in the economy, it's pretty remarkable that what is actually um, getting returns in currency is very fundamental. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Differences in the business cycle Mm -hmm. between countries. I mean, in some ways, that makes sense. I mean, you have the you have the Fed. I mean, think about these traditional currency factors. So the carry or the how much you're paid to hedge, right? Every other central bank is at zero or negative. The Fed's hiking. So that's like just a consistent drumbeat for the last two years. Mm-hmm. You have valuations, which haven't changed all that much. Um, it's slower moving, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then so this change in economics is... So that is that what you see going on in the dollar, basically? The dollar's been strong. The U.S. economy's outperforming Europe. Yeah, I think, well, we're actually in our portfolio right now, we're um, slightly short the dollar on Mm. net. um, And we measure this against a variety of currencies. But what we see going on in the U.S. economy right now is that um, growth is actually has been softening this year. Um, So there's something to be said for the dollar um, strength, because the Fed was sort of the first out of the gate. Um, But we're getting to a point in the cycle right now where there will be differentiation based on which countries are turning over um, faster or slower. Yeah. So we're talking with Maura Pape, strategist, director of business development at Deep Macro, Lee Chen Ren, director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, sort of interesting across all these different macro forces that you're studying. So we've talked a lot about this growth inflation dynamic in currencies, big data. What, what else, uh, where else should we focus? What else are, are you working on? Um, well, I'd say the the things that are really um, different about deep macro is um, it's the the factor based approach, the big data, and um, the machine learning mm. that we that we do within our models. And we touched on this uh, a little bit before, um, sort of how we make use of that um, with still maintaining um, explainability. Um, so I'd say those are the those are sort of the three things that I would say are make the deep macro portfolios different. What do you, what do you, have you done work on machine learning, Lee Chen? We did a little bit. Um, I think um, the one of the things I found in machine learning is that sometimes it's very hard to explain to investors. So you you find a relationship, but what is that? So I think maybe you know when you have growth or or inflation, like when you can give a little bit story behind the patterns you see in big data, that that helps it you know for the investor to understand a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. Um, having an economic rationale for the for the portfolios and using um, machine learning um, 
in a, such a way that it doesn't disrupt the overall explainability is is definitely important. Another thing that, that we sort of do um, in these treatments is um, in our short-term rates portfolio, um, we actually use an ensemble of forecasts. So we look at um, what machine learning models are saying in addition um, to what more linear models are saying. And um, we can actually break that out and, and see. Um, the machine learning models tend to be a little bit more volatile. Um, they make the forecast jump around a little bit more. Um, but we've, what we've seen in our research is that including these machine learning models is actually helpful to the forecast overall, even if it means a little bit more volatility, because in a lot of cases, these machine learning models can pick up on a turn faster. Hmm. Um, so I guess it's just coming back to the point of, you know, using these technologies, but also having a human in charge um, and people with economic uh, knowledge to sort of fill in the gaps around that um, and make it understandable, but still make uh, use of these very powerful techniques. And your machine learning is where you have, it's hard, you have all these different uh, things that are sort of clustered together and you try to plot them with with the clustering? Is this the machine learning clustering discussion we were having? Oh, there's actually, we, we do d different things with it. That okay. is that is one of them. But what it's, one of the things that it's useful for is um, having categorization of things when it's too much for humans to hold in their head at the same time. Um, we can more, a, a machine can see patterns where you can't just have a chart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's more going on than that in the economy, and it's easier for a machine to pick up on that than a human who it's very hard to hold multiple things in your head at, at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And so when, and that's come back to how many different factors go into like a U.S. reading on growth. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how is it as simple as we're looking for GDP expectations and as you're trying to get this growth inflation, the changing growth inflation, like mm -hmm. how many factors would go into a model like this? Um, to calculate our growth and inflation factors, we use thousands of time series. Mm. Um, so they don't all ultimately end up impacting the model. Um, but anything that has... Um, you know, strong statistical properties, if there's a long enough um, time series, if we think it makes sense that it would explain an important part of the economy, um, we put all of these factors in into the funnel. Um, and a good thing about that is um, different factors can be, different data series can be selected into the factors over time. Um, so you can have um, growth and inflation factors over time that reflect the changing makeup of an economy. So maybe the things that were really important 10 years ago aren't the same things that are really important for growth now. Uh, the model can dynamically adjust to that um, to allow our read to be as accurate as possible. Um, where So I think about like what else, um, like the types of things people are doing with, with the macro. So like you're creating these portfolios, you're creating these insights. Um, the big data element is interesting. So to get the, the kind of people who are interested in this insight is the, going back to who is the use the user of this, because um, you're going to try to sell research to help people understand these dynamics better. Like who who's the type of user use, utilizing that? Um, it's ve it's varied a lot. We have a very diverse client base, and I think the reason for that is. Um, a lot of different investors need a read of growth and inflation. <laughs> you can use the research in many different ways. Some people like to actually go into the data if they're a little bit more quantitatively based. Other people are looking um, for a way to implement some more usage of big data without having to bring in-house a team that knows how to get data from a satellite. Um, one of the interesting things about big data has been that it's an innovation in finance that's sort of coming from the outside. A lot of the innovations before, if you think, um, really came from the trading desks, different types of structured products and things like that. And um, big data is a little bit different. Um, so some people just want exposure um, without having to build a team in-house. And then some people like to follow full-on um, investment portfolios um, to see where where the signals, what the signals are ultimately saying um, for the market and use that as a discretionary input into their decision-making process. 
So just to follow, um, um, are there any, you know, those, a lot of institutional clients could pay you, but retail investors, they really have no access. So are there any products that's already in existence and other companies develop? And if not, you know, are you guys thinking about something so that, you know, investors like us who could have uh, access? Well, um, one day we'd like everyone to be using deep macro research on their iPhone wherever they are in the world if it's interesting them yeah. to see different growth and in inflation. Um, but right now we aren't really focused um, on that uh, retail research segment. <laughs> yeah, so there'd be an element for channels for her. There's these self-directed retail that would need these insights, um, but that's hard to find self-directed retail. You know, there's mm-hmm. the advisor community who mm-hmm. is creating model portfolios who might benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then there's fund providers like, like <laughs> yes, us that might yes, benefit yes, yes. from some of these conversations. <laughs> Talk a little bit more about the the, the research package itself, because so you have a few different offerings, I think, from daily to weekly kind of delivery. Yeah. Um, so the the whole idea with our research is to make it a delivery vehicle um, for what we're actually working on and what we're doing at Deep Macro. Um, our research product is by subscription. Um, we put out a report, um, a longer written report weekly. We also have daily reports that are more focused on um changes we're seeing in the data. Um, So we really try to highlight for our clients where things are surprising, where we are out of consensus, and where there have been big changes in the states of the economy. Um, And people can see all of this all the time on our website. (laughs) You got this daily executive brief. Is is that one of the things that you're responsible for doing? Um, I don't do the daily brief because it's uh, highly data focused, but um, I write the the weekly note every week where we try to pick out the most interesting parts of our system um, and highlight them for clients so they can have some guidance um, in what to look at. One last question for me. Uh, um, so when you're researching about the macro factors, do you observe any difference between developed country and uh, emerging market, like a different segments? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the data that goes into the factors varies by country, and um, some countries have more data than others, which is pretty obvious. Um, the readings we're getting right now between developed and emerging markets are quite different, um, but it's probably pretty much in line with what you would expect if you've been watching the markets um, over the last few months. Um, EM growth is negative. It's below trend. It's not looking as good. Um, and developed market growth, although it's slowing, it's still above the, the trend measured on a 10-year basis. Mm-hmm. With the yeah. U.S. outperforming the rest of the world. The U.S. The US is, I'd say, um, it's it's in the middle of the developed market pack mm. um, as far as our reading goes. We are, um, I'd say, a little bit more bullish probably on, uh, on some other countries um, just depending on what our data is saying. <laughs> We're in our final just cl- final closing thoughts. So Lee Chen, any new new role, new focus? Um, any any thoughts about just final t- final seconds joining us? Um, I, I don't know uh, how to uh, make our factors better by incorporating <laughs> macros. Yes, you know? <laughs> new insights. I and mean, this is yeah. exciting why to have you. you just the, the research focus that you've been on and It'll be great to have you part of the team and hopefully as a part of the show um, m- much more often. And Maura, um, any f- any closing thoughts from your days at Penn to mm-hmm. now at Deep Macro? <laughs> well, uh, thanks for having me on the show, Jeremy. Um, I, uh, you know, it, it really, a lot of this stuff uh, started <laughs> started at Penn, just learning about the research process. Um, and uh, I'm happy to be at Deep Macro now. I'm sort of continuing on uh, uh, looking at the markets. <laughs> no, it's been great. It's always great to get former Penn people back on the show. And it was, I mean, we listened to you back, you know, 15 years ago. We used to have a lot of students coming through, working on different research projects, 15 to 20 students a semester. You were one of those stars mm-hmm. and wish we got you earlier, uh, kept you around. <laughs> but uh, it's, been good, it's been good to get you back in touch and have you in the program. Thanks for coming. Welcome. Um, you. You'll be listening to Behind the Markets, Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks for our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.